0: We are starting a new series on the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, It has actually been a really long time since we worked our way through an epistle, start to finish. An epistle, that's the fancy biblical word for a letter. Uh, The New New Testament has all these letters uh, that were written by leaders in the church to the early church, and Galatians is one of them. And, um, you know, it's, it's appropriate that we're looking back on the last five years since I came to St. Paul's, because I did that when I was looking at the, uh, the, the last time that we worked our way through a letter. Uh, so believe it or not, it was almost five years ago now. We worked our way through the, the entirety of James uh, in the summer of 2016. And then shortly before that, we did the letter to the Colossians. And of course, since then, we have looked at uh, passages in all many of the epistles, uh, but we haven't worked our way through a book from start to finish. Hi, Carson. <laughs> uh, we haven't worked our way through an epistle start to finish since five years ago. So I think we're overdue. And I think Galatians is a really good letter to do right now. Because Galatians is the kind of letter that can give life to spiritual dry bones. Um, our last sermon series was all about how we can come to life spiritually after feeling spiritually dry. Because for a lot of us, the pandemic led us to feel spiritually dry. And Galatians is the kind of book that brings life to spiritual dry bones because it reminds us of how good the good news is. How good the gospel really is. It is a reminder of what the gospel is all about so if you have a Bible turn there now Galatians is this little book about three-quarters of the way through the New Testament it's right after second Corinthians right before Ephesians and uh, we're going to be taking the first uh, chapter and a half piece by piece and so I really encourage you to follow along let me pray for us Lord God Uh, We thank you for this morning. We thank you for being able to be together uh, as your people in community in this church. And we just invite you, Lord, to speak to us. We want to be open to hear whatever it is that you want to tell us. Lord, I pray if uh, for some of us our love has grown cold for you, that this morning you would reignite it as we are reminded of how good the gospel is. And if some of us have never realized how good the gospel is, I pray that this morning you would reveal that to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, we'll stop here for a moment. In every letter that Paul writes, he's got some tough things to say, things that people aren't going to want to hear. Corrections, rebukes. But he always goes out of his way to begin by letting the people he's writing to know that his desire for them is grace and peace. He wants them to be blessed. And I think that's a really valuable model for us to follow. You know, most of us have no problem recognizing that somebody is wrong. And some of us have no problem telling people that we think they're wrong, right? But Paul reminds us that before we tell people that they're wrong, it's good to let them know that we really care about them. Do you really want the people that you think are wrong to experience blessing? Do you really want them to experience grace and peace? You should. That should be what motivates you to offer any kind of correction or rebuke. Right? Paul doesn't offer corrections and rebukes because he's self righteous and just wants to, you know, lord it over people. He does it because he knows that there are certain ways of thinking and certain behaviors that rob Christian communities of grace and peace. Right? And so it's good for us to check ourselves before we start correcting people. Do I want them to experience grace and peace? Have I let them know that that's really my desire for them in a way that they can understand and appreciate? And if I don't really want them to experience grace and peace, if I just want to lord it over them, then maybe I'm not the right one to offer them a correction. Grace and peace to you. Paul always likes to work some theology into his greetings. And uh, this this greeting is no different. He says that the grace and peace that he offers ultimately comes from Jesus Christ, who, let's see, uh, gave us, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Present evil age. That stood out to me. You know, it seems to me that if you asked most Christians in America right now, finish this sentence, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from fill in the blank. I don't think most of us would answer this present evil age. Most of the answers that we would give would have something to do with the future, right? He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from a bad afterlife. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the coming judgment. And I don't think those answers are wrong. But it's important for us to recognize that what Jesus did is supposed to affect us in our present, right? Jesus didn't just come to give us life after death. Jesus came to give us life, period, which means life now and life in eternity, right? He came to give us joy and peace and freedom in the present, if our experience of the gospel is just something that we think is going to affect us in the future, but we're not actually experiencing life from it in the present, then we haven't fully understood what we have in Jesus. Because he came to rescue us from the present evil age. Alright. Now there's something very unusual about this letter, something that sets it apart from Paul's other letters in the New Testament. Which is, normally, the next thing Paul would do after expressing grace and peace, greeting, the next thing he usually does is he says, I always thank God for you. And he starts listing a bunch of reasons that he's thankful for the community that he's writing to. But in Galatians, he does not do that. He skips right to a rebuke. So, it is fair to say that this is Paul's angriest letter. Now, that raises the question okay, well, what is Paul so angry about? Something is making him really, really upset. Well, let's keep reading. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted. Let him be eternally condemned. Whoa. He's really upset. Strong words. Alright, now that word gospel, okay, that means good news. Paul preached the gospel of Christ, the good news about Jesus. And he says that some people have infiltrated the Galatian church and they are teaching a gospel that is not really a gospel at all because it's not good news. And Paul is clear that this is not tolerable. Now, in any healthy church, there are peripheral issues that we should agree to disagree about. And in fact, differences in perspective within the church are often a healthy thing. Right? They, we learn from each other as we allow for differences in certain areas. But Paul is clear that whatever these false teachers are saying, this is not something that we can agree to disagree about. This crosses that boundary. What's being taught is so egregious that it is an attack on the very core of the Christian message. Now, so far, right, the text hasn't given us any clues as to what this false gospel is and why it's so wrong. And that's going to become clearer later. We're going to talk about that. But for now, I just want us to recognize how severe this problem was in Paul's eyes. You know, in letters to other churches, Paul confronts all kinds of problems. The first century church, we often look back on it as this, you know, on time of perfection. It wasn't. It was a mess. Right? Paul confronted factions, sexual immorality, envy, greed, laziness. I mean, part of the whole reason he wrote these letters was to deal with problems in the church, but none of those things got Paul this upset. Okay, those things were all cause for correction, but whatever is going on in Galatia is this whole other level. Okay, Paul's not just upset about this; he is astonished, stunned. You know, if Paul was writing this in modern-day language, he probably say, SMH, shaking my head. This is not a minor issue. Now, before we get into what the issue is, next, Paul is going to explain to us why we should be trusting him rather than these false teachers. So, continuing in verse 10, he gives us a couple reasons. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, his argument is, hey, I am willing to say unpopular things to you. I am willing to say things that you don't want to hear. You know, I, I am not like a politician who just is always kind of checking to see where the winds of popular opinion are blowing, and I just go wherever they blow. Right? That's, that's evidence that I'm actually speaking on behalf of the Lord, not just on behalf of my own interests. Right, So that's argument number one. Keep going. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So Paul's second argument is... My message did not come from my own brain. It's something that I received directly from God. Now, understandably, we could ask, well, why should I believe that? Right? I mean, anybody could say something like that. I am, what I am saying is not actually from me, it is from God. Right? What, what reason do we have to believe that Paul actually is correct when he says this? Well, fortunately, Paul doesn't just say, because I say so. Like, Paul actually gives us, Some reasons. And I think they're pretty compelling. Listen to what he says. He says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formally persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. So, Paul's argument is this. I used to persecute Christians and the Christians knew this about me but then one day I had an encounter with Jesus and then I started preaching the very message that I had tried to suppress. Now Paul doesn't recount the details of his transformation but they're recorded elsewhere in the Bible in uh, Acts chapter 9. And that chapter tells us that Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Breathing out murderous threats. And he went to the Jewish high priest and he said, I want authorization to arrest the Christians in Damascus. Any of the Christians who are in the Jewish synagogue, we got to put them in jail. So he asked for authorization. And the high priest said, okay, here you go, here's the papers, go make your arrests. And then as he was on the road to Damascus, he had this supernatural encounter with Jesus. Bright light, he fell on the ground, and he heard his name being called, and he heard Jesus say, why are you persecuting me? And that was the beginning of this incredible transformation, this about-face in his life. And not long after that, he did go to Damascus, but it wasn't to arrest Christians. It was to go into the synagogue and preach that Jesus is the Son of God. And all of the Christians who knew about Paul were stunned by that. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a really strong argument that Paul is not speaking just from his own mind, right? but by the Spirit of God. Because people don't just switch teams like that. At least not quickly, like Paul did. You know, sometimes people will become friends with people who are very different from them, and then slowly their views will change. But that's not what happened with Paul. Paul did an about face, he did a 180. And I want us to notice something else. Okay, Paul did not just switch teams. He also switched methods. Think about this. Once Paul became a Christian, did he start breathing out murderous threats against the Jews? Did he start trying to show, to throw Jews in jail? No, he didn't do that. He didn't turn around and try to persecute his people. He didn't turn around and start trying to use violence against his people. When he was, when he was Jewish, before... Well, he, he, he was always Jewish, but when, before he was a believer in Christ, he was standing there giving approval to the stoning of Christians. There's a story in the book of Acts about the stoning of Stephen... And it says that Paul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. But once he became a Christian, he didn't try to stone the Jews. right? So he did not just change teams, he switched methods. His character changed. Something about his whole approach transformed. And all that is evidence that Paul's ministry is from God. Right? Because it's extraordinary. You know, I like to say, I think that the hardest thing to do is just to change somebody's mind about something that actually matters. I'm often frustrated by how impossible it feels to do that, right? Because human beings don't just swallow their pride and go in the opposite direction of where their zeal has been, they don't do that. They don't suddenly forsake. Violence and put themselves in harm's way. They just don't. And yet, that is what happened to Paul, and the whole Christian community saw it and they heard the report. The man who form- formally persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And then, the other reason Paul gives us uh, for us to see his message as a revelation from God is that he didn't have any contact with the apostles before he started preaching the gospel. He goes out of his way to explain that, right? I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. It's like he got this special revelation, this download from God, that was in harmony with what the apostles in Jerusalem believed, but had not been given to him from them, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with learning about the gospel from another person. In fact, of course, that is the way it normally works. But Paul is saying, I was given this special revelation so that you might know that I'm the real deal. That I come with the authority of God. So he changed teams, he changed methods, and he did all of that without the influence of God. Of the Apostles and all of that is evidence of the direct work of God in his life and when he did finally meet all the Apostles in Jerusalem as he he describes they affirmed his his message and his mission they said yep we agree with you what you're preaching is the truth let's keep reading Um, chapter 2 verse 1 14 years later I went up again to Jerusalem this time with Barnabas "...I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders, for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for one moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. So he's talking about the apostles there. He's saying they did not add anything to the message I was preaching. They affirmed that the message that I was preaching was true. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they did the Jews all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor the very thing that I was eager to do alright so Paul says that uh, he went to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and tell them what he had been preaching to the Gentiles and he says that he did this for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain now why was he worried about that He was worried because some of these false brothers, as he calls them, had started to preach that he was wrong about the message that he was preaching. And they were saying, the apostles in Jerusalem agree with us. And so Paul thought, this is really going to undermine my ministry. It's really going to damage how effective it is. I might be running my race in vain. So he went to the apostles to confer with them and to get their blessing, to have them say, yeah, Paul, you're right, and those guys are wrong. And that's what happened. So, we are finally now in a position where we can start to identify what these false teachers were saying. What the false gospel was. And the clue is when it says, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. And he says this matter arose, this matter of circumcision, because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. So what the false brothers were doing was they were insisting that non-Jewish people, Greeks like Titus, needed to be circumcised in order to be considered part of the family of God. Now that might sound like a very strange requirement to us today. You know, I have never heard a sermon in a church about how men should be circumcised. I hope you haven't either. But if we understand the time when Paul was writing, this actually makes sense. Remember, first followers of Jesus were Jewish, right? Which means that they obeyed the Mosaic law. And one of the instructions in the Mosaic law was that men should be circumcised. Because circum- circumcision for males was a sign that you belonged to God's family. God made promises to Abraham and to all of Abraham's descendants. And the mark on your body as a man that you are a descendant who is to inherit those promises was circumcision. It was the sign of the Covenant. But something started to happen very early in the history of the Church, which is that Gentile people, non-Jewish people, who don't follow the Mosaic Law, they started turning to Jesus, they started believing in Jesus. And so this question arose, okay, if these people are coming to faith, should they be required to follow the Law? Should they be required to eat kosher, you know, no, no shellfish, no pork? Uh, should they be required, if they're men, to be circumcised? Do they need to start doing all the things that Jews have done for centuries in order to make it clear that they are part of the family of God? Do they need to do that? That's a legitimate question. And, you know, it's not hard to imagine why a lot of Jewish followers of Jesus would go, well, of course they do. <laughs> These are the, the practices that have demonstrated our, our piety, our faithfulness to God, for centuries. And so, they, th- you know, some of them thought, well, yeah, if Gentiles are going to come into the family of God, they're going to have to play by the rules. They're going to have to do all this stuff. But Paul and the apostles said, no no the gospel of Jesus is actually better news than that the gospel of Jesus says that we are accepted by God apart from obedience to the law God accepts circumcised men and uncircumcised men God accepts people who eat kosher and people who don't and it is hard to understate how revolutionary how huge this shift in thinking was. But it happened. The family of God is no longer united by these external kinds of things. Now the family of God is united by two things. One, faith in Jesus. What does that mean? It means trust in Jesus. Trust that Jesus is Lord And trust that he has done what is necessary to rescue us from this present evil age. To rescue us from our sins. To rescue us from the devil and his influence. To rescue us from death. To rescue us from every uh, terrible part of our human condition. The family of God is united by that trust. And the family of God is also united by receiving the Holy Spirit. And just in case there's any confusion, these two things happen simultaneously. Okay, If we have real faith in Jesus, we're going to receive the Holy Spirit. If we have received the Holy Spirit, it's going to come with faith in Jesus. I don't believe these are two separate things. Okay? Um, when we've received the Holy Spirit, the sign of that is that a shift takes place within us. Okay? we. We have this trust in Jesus and we are now compelled to orient our lives around Jesus and the life that he, he brings to us. I, I like to say that if you think of your life like a solar system, now the sun in your solar system, the thing that everything else orbits around, is Jesus Christ. His teaching, his death, resurrection, that becomes your center. That's what happens when we receive the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts tells us a story about what happened as the Gentiles started to come to faith. It's really interesting. You can read it on your own if you'd like. It's a passage that's often called the Jerusalem Council. It's in Acts chapter 15. The early leaders all got together to discuss this problem. What do we do with all these Gentiles who are coming to faith? Do we make them follow? The mosaic law or not do we tell them that that's a requirement and Peter had a really interesting argument at that assembly Peter stood up and he was just like look we can see that they've received the Holy Spirit we can see it we can see that they believe in Jesus we can see that that shift has taken place in their hearts that you know he didn't say it this way exactly but now the son of their life is Jesus He's the thing which their life is orbiting around. Why would we then say that they need to follow the Mosaic law? Why would we put that burden on them? Because clearly God has accepted them apart from that. It's an interesting argument. He said, we can see that they've received the Holy Spirit, so let's not burden them with the Mosaic law. And the whole assembly agreed with him. I just want us to appreciate this morning what an incredible shift that was. You know, for the Jews, the law was absolutely essential. But those early Jewish followers of Jesus, they knew that Jesus had done something that changed everything, that Jesus had inaugurated this new era of history. They knew that Through Jesus' death and resurrection, the kingdom of God had come, the doors had been thrown wide to the family of God, and they didn't want to do anything to restrict people coming in to the family of God. Now, over the summer, we're going to be exploring what all of this means in more detail. We're going to be in this book for a while. But today, I just want us to think about the ways that we can make mistakes similar to the ones that those false teachers did. I will give an embarrassing example. When I was quite a bit younger, um, I had a checklist of requirements in my head for what it meant to be a real Christian. And uh, I might not have like said it out loud, maybe I would have, but in my mind that checklist was there. I, uh, you know, I once thought a real Christian has to believe that the world was created in seven 24-hour periods. That's the way they have to interpret Genesis 1. Real Christians interpret it that way. Um, or, you know, I used to think, You know, real Christians only vote for one political party in America. Or real Christians only listen to Christian music. And I remember in high school, whenever a classmate of mine started showing interest in faith, which would happen sometimes because I was part of a Bible study at my high school. I suddenly felt like I had this moral responsibility to get them to be in alignment with me on those kinds of things. And I would invest all this energy in that. And it would really bother people, you know? And they get turned off from the, the whole enterprise, you know? And I look back on that now and I feel so embarrassed and I realize I was being like those false teachers you know those false teachers who when people came to Christ they were like we got to get them circumcised we got to get them eating kosher we got to make sure they observe the right holidays at the right times that's what really matters if if they're not doing that then they're not real followers of Jesus they're not really part of the family of God they're just those in name only Christians Christians What really defines the family of God is not what we eat. It's not which musical artists we listen to. It's not which interpretation of Genesis 1 we favor. It's uh, not the political party that we tend to align with. It's none of those things. It's something so much deeper than any of that, right? It's trust in Jesus, and it is the experience Of the life that Jesus brings. The experience of receiving the Holy Spirit. That is what makes a real Christian. That's the essential core. And Paul was adamant that we cannot make our acceptance before God dependent on anything other than that. That's a non-negotiable. Now you might say, okay, well, Ryan, are you saying anything goes here? Right? That morality doesn't matter, that we can just behave however we like and there's no no moral standards? Are you saying it's wrong to call Christians to moral standards? And I just want to be clear, the answer to that is 100% no. Uh, Jesus and Paul called the church to character, to moral standards. Did that all the time. okay? And you know what, we even see that In this passage, right, the last line of of our passage this morning says, after the apostles all agreed that Gentiles should not be required to follow the Mosaic law, what do they do immediately after? They say, you know, we have to remember the poor. We've got to remember the poor. A Christian is not supposed to be someone who has an attitude of, well, I am saved because I believe in Jesus, and therefore I am now free to live a self-centered life. There is no place in the New Testament that hints at anything like that. right? And we see that here. A Christian is supposed to be somebody who remembers the poor. A Christian is supposed to be someone who is filled with mercy and generosity and love. But the reason why is key. A Christian is supposed to be a person who is filled with mercy and generosity and love because a Christian is someone who recognizes that through Jesus they have received God's mercy, generosity, and love. But when we start insisting that real Christians need to agree with us on these peripheral issues, that in order to be uh, you know, accepted by God, we have to agree on all that stuff and, and do all those things, what we do is we obscure the mercy, generosity, and love of God. And Paul says, no, 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 do not twist the good news. Don't do that. The truth is better than that. What Jesus has done is more powerful than you realize. Here's the irony about Galatians. It's Paul's angriest letter, but I also think it's his most encouraging letter because of what he's angry about. Paul is angry about people making the gospel more complicated than it needs to be. He's angry about people making it more law-oriented and works-oriented than it needs to be. And Paul is angry because he wants God's people to be free. He doesn't want the family of God to be limited to Jews, but to anyone who is willing to turn to Jesus and that's what's got him fired up so this morning i want us to hear this the good news of the gospel is really good really good it is the message that through christ god has accepted us and loves us even apart from the law and part of our job as the church is to make clear just how good the gospel is Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this good news. And if we're having trouble wrapping our heads around it, understanding it, Lord, I just pray that you would reveal it to us. Kind of like the way that you revealed it to Paul. Lord, help us to to have understanding about how your love for us is, is not dependent on following a long list of rules but at the same time Lord uh, you, you want to uh, remake us into people that model the same kind of love and generosity and mercy that you have shown to us Lord help us to know what it means to, to receive that and to live it out we thank you for the gospel in Jesus name Amen